Right now, though, we are starting with another story of crime in the city of Vancouver. We spent quite a bit of time talking about this last week on the show. Well, Vancouver police have released another video. This is video of an unprovoked attack. And you can go to their website. Our website as well is where the video is posted. It does contain some content that people might find disturbing and or upsetting. The video shows the suspect. This happened, according to Vancouver police on Saturday. An unprovoked stranger attack, a 25-year-old man was sent to hospital with what police are describing as life-threatening stab wounds. And Sergeant Steve Addison said that this is the incident This is the incident that has all the hallmarks of a random attack. It came completely without warning, and they are now even more worried about public safety. They're asking anybody who witnessed this assault to come forward and anyone who sees the video and recognizes the suspect to call police. So this happened on Saturday around 6.20 in the morning at the Tim Hortons at Harbor Center. So that's the Tim Hortons near Seymour and West Hastings Street. The victim was waiting in the line when a suspect approached the victim from behind and then repeatedly stabbed him in the back and shoulder before running out of the store. The victim suffered serious life-threatening injuries, was taken to hospital and is expected to survive the attack. And again, police saying they have no idea if there was a motive for this attack, but at this point, it appears random and unprovoked. Again, you can see that video and see a description, not old description, you can see actual footage of the suspect in this case. And this, you might think, sounds familiar. Well, the stabbing that happened on Saturday, just three days after Vancouver police released other security video, and that showed the unprovoked attack on that 22-year-old woman outside of the Hotel Georgia. That took place on New Year's Eve. And again, police releasing that video as well in hopes somebody will recognize the witness Oh, sorry, we'll recognize the suspect in that case and be able to help police find that suspect. Well, joining me now is John Clarides. He's the owner of the Marquee Wine Cellar, and he has been on this program several times before talking about the increase in crime and property crime in the city. John, thanks so much for coming back on the show with us. Jill, thanks for having me. What is your response when you hear about another random attack or what appears to be an unprovoked attack in the downtown core? It's... Sadly, it does not surprise me. Um, I have to walk down there, you know, do to do you know part of my routine business, and I'm always keeping my eyes out, uh, making sure you know watching my surroundings. And uh, you know, we get busy and thought when we're walking down the street. We may have we may be speaking on the phone or have our uh, iPod iPod earphones in, and uh, you're not situationally aware and you become a prime candidate for uh, a random attack or even someone that's actually, you know, maybe even stalking you. So you have to keep, you have to be constantly aware. And this, again, doesn't surprise me. Uh, you've actually started a Facebook group as well since we first talked, uh, since your store, I, you had the window smashed, uh, an e-bike was stolen. Since you've started that Facebook group where people can upload photos of broken windows and have a place to talk about crime, what kinds of crimes are you mostly seeing or what kinds of submissions are you mostly seeing on that group? Mostly uh, window breakages and uh, graffiti and vandalism. I just actually, someone WhatsApped me three images today. Uh, a little pharmacy on uh, Denman Street had their uh, front window all smashed in. 
So it's it's all over the city, and it's just not it's just not downtown. It's just it's moving to other parts of the city. And as the mayor said a couple of days ago, Vancouver is one of the safest cities. Well, I'm not sure what Kool Aid he's drinking, but uh, a lot of people would challenge him on that, and I I, I challenge him on that because it's it's not the city that I grew up in, definitely not. Do you see a shift? And I think that comment did uh, did raise a few eyebrows, to say the least. We had so many calls to the show last week, we didn't even get to everybody. But do you think the shift is, I mean, the, the crime stats m- maybe do show a decrease in certain kinds of crime. But we had people calling in the show, uh, one gentleman saying he's been held at knife point three times just randomly in the city of Vancouver. And when he stood up for himself, he's seen the person go on to the next person. He then saw the guy go onto a vehicle and and slash the tires of a vehicle. I mean, it's one thing if certain parts of crime are down, that's fine. But if people don't feel safe because standing in line at a Tim Hortons at 620 in the morning, somebody's going to come up and randomly start stabbing you. uh, It certainly doesn't make you feel like you're living in one of the safest cities there is. Well, it's not one of the safest cities. and, and, And I said this in the past, we are emulating of what's happening in San Francisco, Portland, Los Angeles, and Seattle. It's moving up here. And now it's not moving. It it is here. It just hasn't, it's not as dramatic as it is in the United States, but it will get there. And if something is not done, uh, if our laws aren't enforced um, and something's not done to curb this, it's just, it's just going to get worse. I mean, it's, it's it's not as I said. It's not really the the, the same Vancouver many of us have uh, grown to love or or grew up in. So what do you think could be done? And again, not that there's one simple solution or one thing that could change everything, but you know this this has been in the works for a long time. We have people who are in desperate need of medical attention, of mental health services that clearly aren't getting them. We have people who know there are no consequences. They can smash as many windows as they want. They can walk into places, shoplift, walk out, and there are no consequences. So if you had to pick one thing as a business owner that would make you feel feel somewhat safer or more secure, what would that be? Well, as you said, though, Joel, earlier, there's really, there's a multitude of issues, but, you know, start enforcing the laws is, is one thing. They definitely need uh, mental health. We need another Riverview opened up. I'm not sure where the provincial government is on that, but if it's anything like my business and I'm in the liquor business, we're going to have to wait a long, long time for any type of meaningful change, meaning, you know, the public should start emailing their MLAs and start complaining about this. Uh, but enforcing the laws is one thing. That's just the number one thing. But it's got to be done all, of, all at once, all at the same time, and that takes some coordination. Right, because even when we talk to police about this, and not suggesting that police aren't doing their job, but police will even say throwing everyone in jail is not the answer, and you can't just take everybody no. who's committing these crimes and put them in jail. But that that on the one hand, we understand that, but also when you see somebody who gets charged with shoplifting and you look up their record or you look up their history and you see 150 other charges, it can be a little bit deflating, I think, for both business owners and for residents uh, who see that. Correct, absolutely, and uh, you know it, need, it needs to be needs to be addressed, um, and it has to be it has to be done fairly soon. Otherwise, uh, Vancouver will quickly go down the way of those uh, uh, American cities that I have uh, mentioned. So you know they, they've got to act on it, and uh, I understand the mayor is 
there's a, a couple of hospitals or the clinics that have opened up at the downtown east side. That's a definite start. We just need more. We just definitely need more of those. And we need them spread out all through the province. So it's just not concentrated all in Vancouver. Has anything changed as far as what you're seeing on, on the streets since we first talked? Uh, I know we've talked about uh, beat officers, uh, more police being deployed as far as foot patrols, particularly on the downtown core and in the West End. Have you noticed any difference? Nothing. Nothing. I was pro- We were promised more beat cops. There's, there's, there's nothing. Some police officers have come in when my store window was broken. They, they've spoken to me, but really nothing. I mean, the community police station up the street on Davie Street had their window smashed, for God's sakes. So that's uh, that, that's a telltale sign. But no, there's uh, there's there's no there's no beat cops that I've seen down here that have that have come in recently. Um, so that's a little bit disappointing. All right, John, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thanks for coming on the program and talking about this. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jill. Take care. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, you may have heard in the news, the Cloverdale Cloverdale Rodeo is not going to be back in place this year. It's been put on hiatus like many events because of the pandemic. The organizers thought that this might be the year, but it's actually not the pandemic stopping the rodeo from going ahead. There are some other reasons. And joining us to talk more about this is Cloverdale Rodeo and Exhibition Association President, Jerry Spielmacher. Jerry, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, so not the, the best news that the Cloverdale Rodeo and Exhibition not going ahead again this year. Uh, not COVID-related, though. So what was it that led to the cancellation of this event again? Well, that's a good one because we're, we're being so uh, disappointed in not having the last two rodeos and then to find out that the the grandstands, which is called the Stetson Bowl, uh, is not safe at this time. We had it inspected and uh, found that uh, it would not be safe for having large crowds on it, especially stomping around and enjoying themselves. So we ended up getting engineers in, and they uh, feel that it can be repaired. The city is working hard right now at, at getting that done, but there's no guarantee that we can have it done by the May long weekend. And without those guarantees, you can't go forward uh, and spend a whole bunch of money getting everything set up and then having to cancel. Right. That's the position that we're in. Yeah. Was it then because it hasn't been used or because the, the Stetson Bowl obviously hasn't been used nearly as much as it normally would during the pandemic, did it kind of fall into disrepair or what happened that made it so it's not safe? Um, there, there's a combination of things. Yes, it was sitting out in the uh, in the environment. And uh, we we do get a lot of vandalism in the at the suite, so there was some vandalism. That didn't cause the structural damages that were there. There just is enough small things that doesn't make it uh, safe. There's not one major item, but there's a whole bunch of things that we have to get done to make sure that it's up to code. So it it can't be done by the, uh, the May long weekend. Sort of disappointing. 
It, it must be, I would imagine, because you, you would think, too, even though it's not being used as much as it normally would, it's still a, a pretty well-known structure and it's still a big a, a place where events do take place. So does it seem strange that the maintenance wasn't kept on up, up with it even during a, a quieter time? Uh, you could maybe say that, although, uh, you know, we weren't realizing that there was uh, that kind of a structure being, uh, you know, being damaged. So uh, we just never looked at it that close, although we did know that there was some areas, but it wasn't high on the priority list, I guess, and it got overlooked. Okay. Unfortunately. Yeah. And when you say there has been vandalism, are you talking about things like graffiti or more structural vandalism? Oh, lots lots of uh, the seats have been smashed. Uh, We've had some small fires up there. It's just uh, more or less youth. uh, And I'm not putting it back onto them, but... Uh, obviously, there has been a lot of damage done by youth up there, and it's uh, even though we have security on the grounds at all times, they seem to be able to to do stuff. That wasn't the cause of of the structural damage, though. Just so you know. Okay, <laughs> that's still got to be be a bit concerning, though, to think that uh, that people are, are going in there, breaking in there, and uh, smashing seats and setting small fires. Yes, it always has been, and you know the only thing we are working with the school uh, district to make sure that uh, we we can do programs and help them uh, set up programs to try and avoid this stuff happening. But uh, again, it does take time, and it happens over a long period of time, like over a couple of years now that the the Stetson Bowl has not been used. So it didn't happen overnight. Right. And who's, whose job is it then when you say that the city is working and it does, it's the city that owns the Stetson Bowl, uh, so working on the repairs, but it, so does the maintenance and upkeep fall to the city or is that also something that, that your association is in charge of? Anything to do with capital projects do belong to the city. It is the city who is, is looking at it and repairing it. So... All right. Do you have any idea on or the costs of the repairs or, or what kind of a bill the city's looking at to get the Stetson Bowl back up to a, a point where it will be safe to be used again? I don't have any exact costs the structural damage. The engineering departments were putting together uh, and had brought in a, quite a few different companies to give them some ideas of the cost. But uh, as of today, we don't have that. So that's one of the issues is that we don't even we haven't even got to the cost part, let alone trying to plan a rodeo in May. Okay, and so not even idea, uh, kind of a ballpark if we're talking about hundreds of thousands or or, or more than that. I, I would think so, more than that. Yeah, like millions. Yeah. Uh, well, if it's going to be millions, the city's going to probably tear it down and rebuild it. Okay, is that one of the that's, options? That's, yeah, that's one of the options. Yeah, if it if it costs so much to just get it back up to a, a pretty good standard, and you can't, you don't know how long it's going to last, you might be better off to tear it down and, and rebuild it. And that is an option. 
although I don't think the city would like to to look at that option right now. And uh, I think they'd be more more than happy if they can get away with doing some major repairs on it. Right. And when we talk about the rodeo itself, how much are you losing out? I mean, I, I mean, uh, there's a different things there, obviously losing out on the experience and having people come and go to that event on the May long weekend. But it's also got to be a pretty uh, economic driver for an event for the city. How much do you think are we, are we losing by not having this event? Well, the city and we always did. Had determined that there was about $10 million of economic spin-off just on the long weekend in May. So that is part of it. Now, we are considering still looking at running the country fair and all of the other events that we have on during the rodeo. It's only this festival that it is, uh, is uh, can, uh, you know, not safe at this time. But we do run a country fair. We run the Midway Food Courts. Uh, we have the world champion skateboarding going on always on that long weekend. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other activity, family activity, and we are looking at the feasibility and the financial uh, feasibility of, of putting that part of the uh, event on. So we, we're looking forward to putting an event on for the uh, citizens of Surrey and district area. So you know, We think we can still do it. It's not a done deal because of COVID and uh, and the different options that we have to look at. We haven't made a final decision on it, but uh, we're still looking at that and we're planning on moving forward as we speak. And would that be for this year, for 2022? Yes, for okay. 2022. Yeah, yeah. We're even looking at doing the parade if, if it's feasibly possible, you know, and continuing to have the celebration. The only thing would be is that the rodeo component of our event uh, would not be there this year. But we're planning on 23, yes, of being open and having a, a great rodeo. All right. Well, we will certainly be watching, and that is some, some positive news that there could be some kind of hybrid exhibition and event taking place this year uh, before uh, any kind of full return. Jerry, we'll leave it there for today, though, but thanks so much for talking with sure. us. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks for having me. Well, some students that go to Simon Fraser University are very concerned about the return to in-class learning. And joining us to talk more about this is Gabriel Leosis, Simon Fraser Student Society President. Gabriel, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. Absolutely happy to be here. Uh, I know there was a plan for a walkout over this. Has that happened already? It has happened already. It happened this morning at around 11 a.m. and was about an hour and a half long. And how was the turnout? The turnout was good. I mean, there was a, a, a decent amount of students who showed up. Of course, uh, it was outdoors and we were physically distanced and everyone was encouraged to wear high quality masks. It was also broad streamed online for um, those people who, um, you know, could not be there. So the turnout was really good. And what are the main concerns then about the students who took part in this walkout as far as being in class for in-class learning? Yeah, the general concern that um, we gathered around this morning was that um, it's way too soon to be uh, in a classroom for in-person teaching at this time. We believe that online learning should be extended until at least the Omicron wave starts to decline and we see cases and hospitalization starting to go down. We just believe that right now it is 
it was a, a very hasty decision made by the university and public health by extension in terms of letting students come back um, to campuses um, so soon, even though we're kind of not at the end of, you know, end of this wave yet. So even though public health is saying uh, if you mask, wearing masks, and if you are careful that schools haven't been a huge source of transmission, even though public health is saying is it's okay, students still have concerns? Yeah, I think there is a lot of mistrust, to be honest, um, from students in terms of the guidance that public health is putting out there. I mean, when we... The return to campus is really multifaceted, if you think about it. There is, on one hand, you have actual lecture halls and classrooms, which, of course, public health deems are are safer settings because they're organized gatherings. Uh, You're sitting in one spot for the entire length of the class, and you're not really facing other people, and so transmission is supposedly lower. Um, We don't really know that yet with Omicron and and its transmissibility, but we'll see um, in the coming weeks what, what that looks like. But then there's also the other parts of campus that are the more unorganized social spaces like your your common study area or a dining hall or a cafeteria or the Starbucks down the road. Um, those are the settings where you're more likely to, you know, be congregating with people that you don't see on uh, a regular basis, taking off your mask, not physical distancing. These are kind of the spaces that students are concerned about, too, because at the end of the day, we don't just come to school to be in a, in a lecture hall. We Students do a variety of other things while they're here on campus. Those are the areas we need to be looking at as well. Um, Areas that the university hasn't really been giving a lot of attention to in terms of trying to enforce physical distancing or at least encourage it. Um, Yeah. Right. But wouldn't a student have the choice? I mean, it's one thing if you were in a lecture hall, like you said, but then wouldn't a student also, even if you're back in person learning, you would still have a choice if you wanted to go sit in a common dining area or go sit in a study area and go to an area where you know you're going to be around people that aren't really part of your circle. Yeah, I, I mean, that is true. But when you're in such a high, highly dense, uh, high density population, rather, uh, it's really hard to actually put yourself in those situations. I mean, lecture halls might be deemed safe. But what about getting into the lecture hall and getting out of the lecture hall? I mean, I was just talking to a student this morning who said um, the scariest part of going to class was not actually being in the class. But it was trying to get out of class without, um, you know, trying to avoid the large mobs of people. Um, and with a, such a small campus such as SFU, it's actually quite packed on campus on any given day, um, walking down really any corridor. And so it's a lot harder to kind of distance yourself from risky situations than people might think. And at this point, then, how many students would you say, I know there's been some kind of a a survey done, how many students would you say are in that group where they don't feel comfortable with the online learning, they'd like to be able to do some kind of distance learning at this point? A a large segment of the undergraduate population, and I can give you some numbers here, and we did do a survey um, over the last couple of weeks, and 5,300 students responded. That's about 20% of the undergraduate population. And around 73% of students want to see some component of um, remote learning. 45% of that said they want to go completely remote. And then the other 28% of that want a hybrid option. And so I think one of our calls to action um, for the university all along, honestly, since the beginning of the pandemic, is to have a hybrid option so that people can choose based on their comfort level and their risk assessment um, whether or not they want to be on campus or not. A call to action that 
the university has been pushing hard against since the very beginning. What would that look like? Would that be would it be as simple enough of, of meaning that lectures are live streamed or recorded and then available to students or how how complicated do you think that would be? I don't think it would be very complicated at all. I know that the university has the infrastructure in place for professors and instructors to record their classes uh, and post them online. It's just a matter of um, actually incentivizing professors and instructors to make um, to to make that you know, those recordings accessible. What's really unfortunate is that during the pandemic, we've seen the university kind of back away from mandating lecture recordings um, by instructors under the, um, under the kind of concept of academic freedom in the sense that professors and instructors can teach their class in any way that they deem fit to achieve the learning outcomes. But at the end of the day, um, academic freedom can trump people's accessibility and, and, and ability to actually uh, engage in a class the same way that their classmate might uh, might be able to. Right. Okay. Uh, so what's going to happen next then at this point? Like you said, it doesn't appear like the, there's, there's going to be a hybrid option, at least not at this point. It looks as though in-class learning is going to continue. Are there going to be students who think that simply aren't going to go or what happens next? Yes, absolutely. I, I've even spoken to a few students this morning at the walkout who said that they, they just they cannot bring themselves to, to be in a lecture hall. And I think the really disappointing part about this is that there is almost virtually zero uh, institution-wide uh, accommodations available to students. The onus is on us to ensure our safety based on our risk level. Um, and that's an incredible burden to put on students because not every professor um, provides accommodation on the same playing field as another professor. Um, and so, you know, once again, we're, we're, it's disappointing but unsurprising that at this point in time, the university is, pu- is putting the burden once again on students to, to protect our own safety when they could be putting common sense safety measures and accommodations in place that would take the burden off students um, uh, by, by, by a lot. Do you think part of the argument, or are you hearing this argument that we're hearing from public health, that if you are in that younger age group, if you are vaccinated, that yes, you could still get the variant, you could still get a variant of COVID, but you're not likely to need hospitalization, you're not likely to have an extreme version of it, that we're kind of shifting, and even Dr. Henry talked about the fact we're shifting into how do we live with this virus, and if that's the case, uh, do students need to really worry about it if they're in that group? group. Yeah, I um, I don't at all believe in the whole messaging that's been going out about Omicron being a more mild variant. I mean, I personally know multiple people, including some of my own colleagues who had Omicron over the holidays or, or COVID over the holidays, and they were describing symptoms to me that were anything but mild. Um, and so especially for those students, um, it's, it's a bit of a, a slap in the face for us to be back so soon, especially having to go um, through that experience or students who are hearing about those experiences and are scared that they're going to catch COVID themselves. Um, and so I, I don't I don't buy the argument that if you're young, you're fully vaccinated or you're boosted, that you're somehow, you know, protected more than others. I mean, of course, our layers of protection, such as vaccination, masks, physical distancing do help. But with the transmissibility of Omicron, I mean, the game is completely different now.
what about the students that want to be in class? When you talk about those numbers, say 73% is a high number, but as you said, still, we're talking only about 20% of the undergraduate population that answered the survey. So what about the number of students who want in person and want those classrooms open? I would say to that, then the university needs to really invest in that hybrid model I was just talking about. Give students a choice whether or not they want to be here or not based on their level of comfortability, their level of risk. Um, Give students a choice. Um, It's it's as simple as that. Um, This should have been an investment that the university made since the beginning of the pandemic. But it it hurts the university's bottom line or or whatever to to have um, some students here and some students not. It's it's um, it's it's unfortunate that that call to action hasn't been acted upon or really even um, considered a, even a small amount um, up until this point. What do you anticipate happening then in the future as far as the walkout took, t- took place today at 11? Uh, do you anticipate more action happening or what's the next step? I definitely anticipate more action to come. I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but I think students are angry. Um, students don't want to be back on campus right now. Um, I fully support any democratic and peaceful option that um, students can engage in to make the university administration hear our voices because, um, unsurprisingly, um, the university continues to take a really uh, undemocratic and unconsultative approach to the decisions they make around the pandemic. Um, we're sick of that. We just want our voices to be heard. And, um, Uh, You know, you see universities like UBC who have extended until mid-February and universities like USC who actually did a survey of their undergraduate membership, um, their undergraduate students rather, and and kind of crafted their return to in-person classes around the data that they that they um, that they collected. Why isn't UBC take I mean, sorry, why isn't SFU taking leadership um, like those universities are? I, I, I think that there just needs to be a more democratic approach to the decisions that the university is making and a, a more consultative approach. That's all we're asking for. And I think if, if those concerns were listened to, then maybe at the end of the day, students would actually feel safe being back here today. All right. Well, Gabriel, we'll leave it there, but continue to watch and see what happens next. Thanks so much for your time and for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, taking a look at some international news, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying today how Canada responds more to the continued threat from Russia against against Ukraine. That is on the agenda for a three-day virtual cabinet retreat. We're also hearing from the federal foreign affairs minister speaking to Global News' Mercedes Stevenson saying that she has not ruled out the possibility of shipping weapons to Ukraine. But how does this compare to what other countries are doing and the response of other countries? Is enough being done? Joining us to talk more about this is Stuart Prest, SFU political science lecturer. A lecturer joining us to talk about his take on what's happening. Stuart, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I want to talk to you about what is happening as far as Ukraine and more about the response to Ukraine. You made an interesting comment on social media, kind of referencing it or comparing it to the League of Nations. What are your thoughts on on kind of that comparison? Well, we are in this uh, situation, which we we really haven't seen in 
uh, in decades where the two major powers in the world are are, are at odds very publicly and openly over uh, a bit of territory in, in Eastern Europe in this case. And uh, and, and it, is a, it seems like it's a, a case in which there is a a government in Russia, which is which is non-democratic, uh, asserting a, a right to have some sort of special privilege in a neighbor, uh, asserting something in eastern Ukraine, and we have all these democracies here in in Western Europe and in the rest of the NATO alliance having to decide: Are they going to stand up against this, and if so, to what extent, and how far are we willing to go to assert uh, essentially NATO's rights to to accept someone like Ukraine into into that collective security system? So these are, in some ways, issues that we just haven't had to to confront for some time. What are your thoughts on whether or not it's kind of a a joint forces? Are we looking at countries, Canada included, that are going about offering up help on their own? Are we seeing any kind of of working together with these democracies to, to try and show a bit of a united front? I mean, we see what seems like a, you could call a limited united front, and in some cases a papering over of differences, where NATO uh, countries seem like they have agreed that they are not going to simply give in to, to Russia's demands, in this case to essentially forego the possibility of expanding into Ukraine, denying essentially Ukraine the right to, to make its own foreign policy decision in, in that area. So we, uh, we've all agreed to that. But beyond that, what are we going to do to back up that uh, that, that, that space for Ukraine and, and provide support for Ukraine? There seems like there is a, a real d- disparity of views among NATO countries, where uh, some, such as, as Germany, seem quite unwilling to to go too far in in uh, opposing Russia directly. We have countries along the Baltic which are, are sh- shipping weapons directly to Ukraine and just received authorization from the United States to, to ship these, these weapons across the border uh, to support Ukraine directly. And then other countries, the UK is providing support, the US is providing uh, some, some direct support, and then countries like Canada, which seem like they're trying to do something in between where they're really articulating strong support for Ukraine's independence, but really limited and how far they're willing to go to to provide concrete support to to back that up. Uh, the Prime Minister has said that Canada is going to be talking about this or that this is going to be on the agenda for this three-day virtual cabinet retreat. Uh, the government has also been coming under some criticism for the hashtag campaign pictures uh, of people, although it's been all parties, not just the, the federal liberals, people showing pictures of hashtags to show support for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Is it enough to do that as long as Canada's also taking other measures? I know there's the interest-free loan, but do they need to be showing more support or more action on this front? I think there's there's a real risk here if the most visible thing you are doing is is a an, uh, an awareness raising campaign on social media if that's the only sort of thing that that resonates with people that there isn't a, a strong concrete response and and the, the loan is is a step but it is going to be uh, of limited utility in, in these in these coming weeks. If if all we're doing is, is providing rhetorical support and and nothing beyond that, then it does make Canada seem like uh, uh, something of an afterthought on the international stage at this moment of of high drama, where where some values that Canada uh, uh, professes to to uphold are are under pressure. So there there's a real risk here of appearing to be all talk and, and social media and and image and and just not enough substance on on an issue where this, 
it is a high stakes question and in terms of uh, trying to deter a, a great power again it's it may require um uh, a clarity of focus that we just haven't had to 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 bring to bear in some time. We have had this luxury of existing in a uh, a post Cold War moment with a, a single unchallenged superpower in the United States directly to our south. We don't agree with everything that happens there, but it's been a relatively peaceable time. We may be moving into a a new phase of international politics here, and we have to be ready for that. How much do you think is the attention also on the one hand supporting Ukraine, standing up for Ukraine, but then also understanding that uh, getting Canadians to safety, getting diplomats to safety and and the public, I guess, the the reaction if there there are Canadian casualties? I mean, that's something that the government clearly has to think about. They, they're, they're, they need to be able to, um, in, a, in a moment like this, walk and chew gum at the same time to, to find ways to ensure that they are, are providing the support that is going to, to be meaningful to, to defend Canadian interests and values in, in this situation, but also to, to uh, safeguard Canadian lives. And we, we saw what happens in the, 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 the fall of, of Afghanistan to, to, to the Taliban. If, if Canada is not sufficiently prepared to deal with a, a quick uh, a move, a quickly moving situation like that to, to protect Canadians as well, they will come in rightly for a, a a certain amount of criticism on that front. Again, it's a uh, it's an operational situation that's going to re- require government to to move quickly. And there's some evidence that they they are moving on that front. And I think some of the communication that we're hearing is to try to uh, stave off some of the criticism that we did here in the the aftermath of uh, of the Afghanistan situation. When you look at the different responses then from different countries, and again, that very limited kind of united front, where does that leave Ukraine then as far as obviously seeing the response and seeing to what measures what measures different countries are taking? Does it then leave it up to Ukraine to figure out, okay, well, here's who we want to align with or here's who is, who is best suited to help us? It seems like that is what Ukraine is having to do. We know that they're seeking out these bilateral arrangements, so seeking particular support from from uh, the UK, for instance, and uh, some uh, defensive weaponry, and and then successfully uh, getting support from their, their their Baltic neighbors, who clearly have a, a strong incentive in this situation to to see a strong defense of those eastern borders uh, against Ukraine, and uh, uh, and then making the case to allies like. Canada saying, could you please help us with, with this kind of material? This is what we need. And then having to negotiate on a on an ally-by-ally basis, which is uh, obviously um, uh, an unwieldy process for, for Ukraine to have to unfold. But it seems like that's that's the, the best that NATO can do at this moment in history, at least. And uh, we'll, we'll watch how the situation unfolds. Again, it is a quick-moving situation that uh, if there is additional provocation from Russia, that may give uh, NATO allies additional incentive to to um, f- focus their their support and and co- uh, uh, collaborate in, in in their support for Ukraine but, but we're certainly not at that stage yet. Yes. Uh, and one other question when you talk about that as well and on Friday speaking uh, on the West Block uh, Canada's defense minister Anita Anand said that she hadn't ruled out the possibility of shipping re- weapons to Ukraine. It, does that change things significantly as far as Canada's response or no? 
Uh, I mean, it really depends what we're talking about. So uh, there, there are uh, essentially levels of, of contribution we can we can look at where uh, Canada's um, signal an awareness to to provide some uh, forms of uh, often. Uh, d- primarily defensive weaponry or support in the form of tents and, and goggles and, and, and material that's operationally helpful but, but not necessarily going to help directly respond to, to any kind of Russian incursion. If um, the if Canada were to try to, to meet Ukraine's request for things like anti-aircraft and anti-tank weaponry, then that would be certainly a, a different level of response. And so I think there, there are differences of the kind here we may see. And uh, so the more strongly Canada... Uh, responds in terms of providing that kind of support or even just funding for for that kind of uh, of weaponry it it potentially risks uh, uh, a certain kind of escalation or raising the ire of Russia but it also uh, signals a, a commitment to this kind of principle of, of collective defense and so we're having to see countries are having to make these kinds of choices and uh, there is no easy answer here these are genuine uh, dilemmas in international politics and so we're we're going to have to watch and evaluate what our government does in the, in the coming weeks they're, they're not going to necessarily be able to hide from a decision here. All right. Stuart Prest, we'll have to leave it there for today. But thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.